welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads Season 2, The A World in Peril by Ken White. Uh, <clears throat> before we get started on this episode, I just want to um, let you all know that this will be the first time that I'm reading this. Uh, we'll be learning it together. And this is off archive.org, the Internet Archive. Um, this book in particular has a lot of images. Um, so if you want to go there and download the PDF so you can see the images, um, rather than, I'm not going to try to explain them, you know, I'll let you know when there's an image, um, and then we'll go there. And the beginning of this season two, what I'm going to do is read the beginning of the book and all the chapters, and then because the chapters are somewhat smaller, uh, shorter, uh, I'll be reading multiple chapters in each episode. So for this first episode, we'll be reading three chapters. And I don't think I've mentioned it before, but I do have a Twitter, um, Ice Age Prep. The handle is at age underscore prep. Um, I do put some links to the podcast there and update things there too. Like last week I updated uh, on the Twitter handle about how I was waiting to get my new recording of uh, equipment before posting a new episode so that was on there if you want to follow there to get all the updates and to see all the things that I retweet from other people who I think are interesting and fascinating talking about um, Ice Age Prep and climate change follow me there at, at age underscore prep on Twitter and now we'll begin World in Peril the origin, mission, and scientific findings of the 46th 72nd Reconnaissance Squadron by Ken White. This is um, copyrighted 1994, and this book is dedicated to the aviation pioneers of the 46th 72nd Recon Squadron and their charming wives. And now we're going to go over the table of contents um, in the chapters. So part one, origin, mission, and scientific findings. Chapter one is the origin of Project Nanook. Chapter two, finding a commander. Chapter three, the briefing. Chapter four, deployment. Chapter five, the supply problem. Chapter six, maintenance support. Chapter seven, background of the 46th first polar flight. Chapter 8, Project Nanook, First Operational Mission. Chapter 9, Maintenance Policy of the 46th. Chapter 10, The Soviet Threat. Chapter 11, The First Monthly Briefing Trip to Washington. Chapter 12, Operations, Late 1946. Chapter 13, The First Arctic Survival Training. Chapter 14, General LeMay's Visit. Chapter 15, A First in Polar Aviation. Chapter 16, Winter Maintenance. Chapter 17, Crash on Take Off on Runway 24 Right. Chapter 18, The Last Flight of the Keybird. Chapter 19, General Eisenhower's Visit. Chapter 20, Beacon Hill Crash. Chapter 21, General Spatz Visits the 46th. Chapter 22, The Loss of the Forlorn Turkey. Chapter 23, Survival Rations Test at Birchill. Chapter 24, Survival Test. Survival Kits Test Chapter 25 The Christianing of the Barrow Sparrow 
Chapter 26, Contributions to the Squadron Mission. Chapter 27, Terrestrial Magnetism Studies. Very interesting. I think that one's going to be a good one. Chapter 28, Clues to a Cataclysm. Chapter 29, Polar Wander. Chapter 30, The Flip of the Earth. Chapter 31, Legacy of the 4672nd. So... I, for one, am most interested in chapter 27 through 31. But those are in the future. we got to get through all the other chapters before we get there. But like I said, the chapters are pretty small. So we'll go through several chapters in each episode. Uh, For instance, chapter 27 starts on page 177. And chapter 28 starts on page 181. Not very many pages per chapter. There is a part two to the book, Personal Experiences. Chapter 32, The Club. Chapter 33, Building a Home in Fairbanks. Chapter 34, The Tangle Lake Episode. Chapter 35, GIs Make Success of Project Happiness. Chapter 36, Alaskan Memories. Chapter 37, The Catch of a Lifetime. Chapter 38, Homecoming. Chapter 39, Reminiscence of Alaska. Chapter 40, The Grounding Incident. Chapter 41, The 46th Raid on Tokyo. Chapter 42, Kodiak Bear Hunt. Chapter 43, The Saga of Peter Duncan. Chapter 44, Tundra Survival Movie. Chapter 45, Christmas in Alaska. Chapter 46, A Few Memories of Life in Alaska. Chapter 47, The Moose Hunt. And of course, there's uh, an epilogue. And there's an Appendix A that goes over the position of the magnetic North Pole. And Appendix B is a biography of Maynard E. White. And then there's a huge table of illustrations um, over two pages worth. So like I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of illustrations in this book. Um, I highly recommend that you go to archive.org, the Internet Archive, and look up uh, A World in Peril by Ken White. So you can, I mean, if you want to see the pictures, you don't have to, obviously, but um, I think it might be pretty great. I'll be looking at them, so. (laughs) Okay, without further ado, part one, the origin, mission, and scientific findings of the 4672nd Recon Squadron, chapter one, the origin of Project Nanook. Washington Post, April 20th, 1946. Russian control of Hungary complete, experts say. April 21st, red demands still hold up peace treaties. Soviets may not quit Azerbaijan. Truman urged to act on U.S. reorganization. April 22nd, army discharges since May 12, 1945 reached 7 million. Demobilization makes air transport command ground 130 planes. April 24th, Army to begin demoting majors, captains, on September 1st. The stage was set for the Cold War even before World War II was over. At the Yalta Conference in February of 1945, Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, and Franklin Roosevelt agreed on two major decisions that would cause unavoidable tensions and confrontations between the free and communist worlds. The forces of democratic influence were represented through the acceptance of the Declaration of Liberated Europe, 
which called for allied installments of, in the occupied countries of interim governmental authorities broadly representative of all democratic elements in the population, and also requiring the earliest possible establishment through free elections of governments responsive to the will of the people. This concept has been the free world's theme ever since, but it is not without opposition. A sharp contrast to the aims of that declaration was that same conference's concurrent agreement to effectively cede much of the Eastern and Central Europe to the absolute control of totalitarian Soviet communist government and to put Berlin into a singularly precarious situation. At this one conference, the preliminary groundwork was laid for both Soviet communism's post-war ideological expansionism and its direct counterpart, the free world's moral imperative to make freedom available to all peoples. The ensuing struggle between these concepts would underlie a world conflict in politics and socioeconomics that would last nearly 50 years. But in 1946, the term Cold War hadn't been in, even been invented yet. Few people, with the notable ex- exceptions of Winston Churchill, George Patton, and a handful of politicians and generals had even thought about the threat of the Soviet expansionism. National defense and peacetime had never been a great preoccupation of the American populace, and this was especially true when World War II was no longer news and people's thoughts had turned to more personal pursuits. America's initial response to the world's expectancies was to shrink from them. The post-war spirit was summarized in the newly coined word demob, meaning demobilization, and was used to emblazon headlines in the start and, quote, GI's protest lag in demob program, end quote. The convoys bringing troops home were even larger than those that had deployed troops to the war ever. The ink was no sooner dry in a Japanese surrender document than five million men, almost half our wartime troop strength, were released from active duty. Our forces in Europe were being reduced from 2.8 million reported home. Total occupation forces, mostly in Japan, amounted to a mere 15% of our wartime strength. Incredible amounts of surplus military equipment were unloaded at whatever vehicles, cranes, earth-moving equipment, and ambulances were sold at bargain prices. Thousands of aircraft that could not be sold to commercial airlines or to private interests were demolished en masse. Speedy as the demobilization process was, it was not fast enough for the overseas GI John Sharnick in his book, Inside the Cold War, explains that, quote, Some politicians rode the wave of public sentiment. Bring the boys home was a popular position that few elected officials dared to oppose openly, end quote. Senator James Wadsworth of New York felt that the underlying forces behind demobilization was that, quote, every mother wanted her boy home, end quote. After surveying the Russian-occupied zones of Europe immediately after the war ended, Senator Claude D. Pepper of Florida recalled that he incurred the wrath of some of the GIs by saying that he didn't think we ought to release the men as rapidly as we were doing, that he thought we'd have to pay for it later on. All it took were overseas points to become eligible for discharge, and everyone who had the points seemed to want out. What started as a military expediency became one of the most disorderly demobilizations imaginable. After a while, there weren't enough personnel left on some stations to justify the base's operation, so remnants of units were transferred to other bases to consolidate remaining forces. 
Thus, within one year after the war, the granting of military discharges on request and the rapid post-war demobilization had left our fighting units depleted, our military establishment in disarray, and our nation ill-prepared for events to come. The major flaw in our force reduction policy became alarmingly apparent only when we began awakening to the fact that the Soviets had no intentions of demobilizing their forces, and they had the largest military force the world had ever known. Even if our military intelligence staffs were not yet familiar with the eccentricities of Soviet political military doctrine, they could at least recognize an imbalance of power. Had our government and military officials been more knowledgeable about Soviet military thinking, the alarm would have been sounded much sooner. Soviet military doctrine as expounded by Vladimir Lenin encompassed the logic that the existence of the Soviet Republic side by side with imperialist states for a long time is unthinkable. One or the other must triumph in the end, and before that end ensues, a series of frightful collisions between the Soviet Republic and the capitalist states will be inevitable. Therefore, to the prudent observer, not only was it clear that the Soviet expansionism had been preordained, but that only an undefeated United States stood between the Soviets and their goal of inevitable communist world domination. Pentagon planners were charged with the responsibility of countering this threat with the limited resources and personnel available. A foremost consideration was that if any attack by the Soviets against the United States were to come, it would undoubtedly have to be by air, over the polar cap and through Alaska, the shortest route between potential adversaries. It was also recognized that we knew very little about flying in the polar regions. Arctic flights had always been hazardous at best, due to limited knowledge and lack of navigational aids. In addition to this great concern about the possible existence of unknown landmasses in the polar cap, which the Russians might already have established forward operating bases, possibly even as close as 100 miles offshore from Alaska, we simply didn't know. It was for these reasons that our armed forces were reorganized and that the Strategic Air Command was established in March of 1946 by General Hap Arnold's successor as Army Air Forces Commander General Carl A. Spatz. This new command had its choice of bombers and other aircraft within the inventory, and manning requirements were met with the most experienced Army Air Forces personnel available. The first commander of SAC, General George Kenney, his deputy, Major General St. Clair Street, and his chief of staff, Brigadier General Frederick Smith, were immediately tasked to first assess the Soviet threat and subsequently develop a strategic deterrent capability. In order to do this, SAC had to organize an aviation unit and deploy it rapidly to our northernmost base, Ladd Field in Fairbanks, Alaska, to begin developing an accurate system of navigating for flying over the polar cap using existing equipment. For security reasons, the overall mission, codenamed Project Nanook, Nanook, would remain classified top secret, and under the direct command of SAC headquarters, Washington, D.C., it was these circumstances that provided the basis for the formation of the 46th Reconnaissance Squadron, very long-range, photographic, which thus became Strategic Air Command's first operational units assigned SAC's first operational mission. Chapter 2. Finding a Commander Washington Post, April 26, 1946 Eisenhower warns U.S. to keep strong till peace is assured. Reds reject U.S. protests on Manchuria. Army to tighten discipline abroad, Europe almost clear of units to return home. April 27th. 
Eisenhower stresses value of air power, global conflict foreseen. At the end of the war, when the military was rapidly demobilizing, there was no data automation, satellite telecommunications, or computers to massage data relative to personnel and equipment. All records were maintained manually and filed by hand, and the 1946 State of the Art in Personnel Accounting was the morning report, stating who in the unit was available for duty, who was on leave, sick, or unaccounted for. This report was sent to the next higher echelon daily, either by mail or telegraph. Accordingly, all record-keeping was laborious and usually after the fact, oftentimes long after the fact. Most of the most all activities involving temporary duty and travel were implemented by verbal orders of the commanding officer, BOCO, and change of plans are proper, CPAP, instructions. The reason for this was to accommodate deviations from plans since personnel starting out on temporary duty seldom knew where they might end up or when they might get back. Upon return, however, they could tell the adjutant where they had been, how they had traveled, where they had stayed, and when they got back, and the adjutant would publish a set of orders confirming the TDY, VOCO, and CPAP dates, along with appropriate finance codes for the official reason of the trip, then the adjutant would again record the person on the morning report as present for duty. One could take, then take a copy of that special order to the finance clerk, who would type a voucher that could be taken to the finance officer, who would grant a reimbursement of $2 per day to cover lodging and meals. Needless to say, one did not stay at the Hilton or eat at Antio- Antoni's while on TDY, at least not on government money. The Spaniel type of personal management was not without its share of confusion and lengthy delays. Within this administrative framework, somewhere between Army Air Force headquarters and the 449th Bomb Group, to which the 46th recount was assigned, but as of yet without its complement of personnel or aircraft, Someone decided that the officer who would command the 46 would need to have extensive background in mapping and reconnaissance, and considerable experience in the B-29 aircraft. The question left facing SAC and its 15th Air Force was how to go about finding such a person with two specific and needed qualifications instead of just one military occupational specialty. When the reporting system listed each individual by their primary MOS only, this became a significant problem when so many personnel were getting out of the service. And here is uh, an issue with this particular copy of the PDF that I have. That was page six, and then the next page that I have is nine. So this particular edition does not have page seven or eight. I don't know if that's on purpose or why they're missing in this edition, but they are. So on to page nine. It just picks up like this. Colonel said he was Dick Montgomery and asked the major to accompany him to his office. When they arrived, the major was asked what experience he had in aerial mapping and reconnaissance. The major stated that upon graduating from pilot training in September 1941, he was assigned to the second photo mapping squadron at Grayfield, Fort Lewis, Washington. About a month after the war started, he was one of 12 officers sent to Lowry Field in Denver, Colorado to attend the first photo pilot class. Upon graduation, he returned to the 2nd Photo Squadron at Fettsville, 
Spokane, Washington, and took an F-2 photo aircraft and crew to Canada to aerial photo map the terrain for the building of the A.I. Can Highway. Upon completion of that task, he returned to the 2nd Photo Squadron to take an A-20 to Anchorage, Alaska to do some tandem T-3A photo work in the Anchorage area. From Anchorage, he was sent to Umnak Island in the Aleutians to be the photographic officer for the Alaska Defense Command. From there, he returned to the 2nd Photo Squadron to take 24 Lockheed Hudson A-29 photo planes to map the jungles of the interior of South America, looking for rubber trees. After several months in the Amazon jungle, he was flown back to the States on a stretcher with appendicitis, ending up in the hospital at Fort George Wright in Spokane, Washington. On the day he returned to flying status, he departed for India and China with the 3rd Photo Mapping Squadron to map the Hump and Burma in preparation for the B-29s going into China. In March of 1944, when the job was completed, he returned to the States. Colonel, Colonel Montgomery then asked if Major White had ever flown a B-29. He answered that within two months of returning, after returning from China, he was a B-29 instructor pilot at Fairmont Field, Nebraska, where he was in charge of the training Section 3 and where he spent the rest of the war training crews to fly the B-29 for deployment to the Marianas. He added that he had an excess of 2,500 2, instructor pilot and first pilot hours in the B-29. Colonel Montgomery was clearly satisfied with the major's qualifications. The colonel finally asked if Major White was currently in the B-52, B-25. He said he was. The colonel then told the major to go back to his quarters, pack his bags, and leave immediately for Colorado Springs to report to the 15th Air Force Headquarters Commanding General, Major General Charles F. Bourne, who wanted to talk with the major yet that afternoon as soon as he could get there. The colonel said he would go to base operations and set up an aircraft and crew that would be ready to depart for Colorado Springs within the hour. When he got back to base operations, Major White learned that his crew on the B-25 were Captain John Legrand, 2nd Lieutenant J.B. Reed, Staff Sergeant Raymond W. Flora, and Private Joe A. Warren. They flew to Peterson's Field where a staff car was waiting to take Major White to the 15th Air Force Headquarters building, where he was immediately ushered into General Bourne's office. General Bourne got up from his chair, walked around the end of his desk, and shook hands with the Major White, with Major White, asking how the Major had gotten to Colorado Springs. He told him that he had flown a B-25 from Grand Island. General Bourne then asked if the aircraft and crew were still at, at Peterson's Field. He said yes. The General said, Major, here's what I want you to do. Go out and get in my staff car, which is waiting at the front door to take you back to Peterson and get into your plane and fly into Bowling Field tonight and report to Chief of Staff at Strategic Air Command Headquarters there at Bowling Field at 0800 hours tomorrow. General Freddie Smith and General Bill Street will be there waiting to meet you. Major Wright and crew took off with an estimated time of arrival at Bowling Field, Washington, D.C. at around midnight on June 3, 1946. They landed at Bowling Field and got a few hours sleep. The first thing the following morning, Major White reported into SAC headquarters at the Chief of Staff's office. There he was told that the meeting was held up pending a call from the Pentagon, but that it shouldn't take more than an hour or two. It took much longer than that. The expected call came about 48 hours later. It was months later before Major White learned that the delay had been caused by an investigation to verify his security clearance. 
The briefing turned into out to be an extensive and involved many personnel from numerous agencies. Chapter 3. The Briefing Washington Post, May 4th, 1946 Fear of war weakening U.S. John Hopkins head declares. May 10th, Reds Balk Peace Talks Plan. May 29th, U.S. Can't Lag in Research for War. In the intelligence portion of the briefing at Strategic Air Command Headquarters, it was pointed out that our government had considerable information on the European situation as it pertained to the Russians and the future plans for that area. But information on Siberia and Alaska was quite a different picture. Our apparent total lack of intelligent information on Soviet's plans, intentions, and activities in eastern Siberia was of great concern to the intelligence community, our government, and our military. The matter was such a great concern that the military felt an urgent need to do something immediately. It was also apparent that there were diverse opinions within our intelligence staffs, government, and military as to how to best approach this problem. The most logical and rapid solution to the problem of assessing the Soviet threat was obviously through the Army Air Force's reconnaissance. It was then revealed that since its inception on 21st March 1946, this task had already been assigned the highest priority in Strategic Air Command. To supply the needed information about the Arctic, SAC had formed the 46th Reconnaissance Squadron and assigned it several mission objectives to include developing an accurate system of navigation for flying over the polar cap using existing equipment, assessing the extent of the Soviet threat in the Arctic, surveying and mapping the Arctic, making comprehensive weather studies, conducting polar terrestrial magnetism studies, testing the endurance and efficiency of men and equipment under the stress of extreme Arctic conditions, and later, when the new skills were mastered, training SAC bomb bombardment units in polar navigation and Arctic operations. All other directives addressed during the subsequent briefing were in support of these objectives. Before the Soviet threat could be assessed, it had to be determined how to fly over the polar cap and know precisely where one was at all times. Most of the people in the briefing felt that this might be the only insurmountable problem we face. The only suggestion anyone had was to use Lorraine, long-range radar navigation stations. All there, there was only one station and use that might be reachable from the polar cap, and one station by itself was practically useless. The briefers felt there was a little hope that another Lorraine station could be set up and maintained in light of the urgency of the task before them. It was apparent that the concern about ascertaining the Soviet threat in the Arctic was bordering on panic, and that time was of the essence. Not only was there great concern that there might be land in the polar cap, which the Russians might have already established forward operating bases, but concerns were made known that the Soviets might have their operating bases in the Canadian archipelago. The briefing staff was convinced that the Soviets already had the ability to navigate and operate over the polar cap. It was mentioned that the coordination with the Canadian government was under, underway and the Canadians had already agreed to finish a contingent of aviators to Ladfield to fly with the 46 each time a 46 airplane overflew the Canadian archipelago. The Canadians also felt that the portion of the polar cap bordered by straight lines from the western and eastern shores of Canada to the North Geographical Pole belonged to Canada. A point was made that all coordination with the Canadians would be 
made at diplomatic levels between our two governments and not discussed at squadron level. The subject of security took in on elaborate proportions at the time as it pertained to the 46th mission and operations at Fairbanks. Shortly after the 46th would be, would be arriving in Alaska, the unit could expect numerous criminal investigation division personnel to be assigned to the 46th, who would live on base in the 46th squadron barracks. Various U.S. governmental intelligence agencies were becoming increasingly active in the Fairbanks area. The commanding officer of the 46th would neither be in the chain of command nor privy to the details of the security force activities at either Fairbanks or in the 46th. It was also discussed that the then-planned aircraft modification program would not meet the updated deployment schedule. It had been decided to select the latest model, low airframe time B-29F aircraft that were available in the inventory, making sure that they had all the tech order modifications completed. They had also decided that the 18 B-29s would be required. The aircraft modification program called for all aircraft to be stripped of all turrets and guns, and all surplus equipment from the bomb base removed to make the aircraft as light as possible. Afterwards, they were to be fitted with single metal fuel tanks fabricated to fit into each bomb bay with a one-inch clearance on all sides, bottom, and at the top, which was formed to fit around the crew tunnel. Only two of the 18 aircraft being modified were nearing completion at briefing time. Their tail numbers were 521-848 and 521-859. There were also concerns about the camera modification in the background in the back compartment of the first two aircraft and Major White was instructed that immediately following the briefing, he would proceed to the depot at Tinkerfield in Oklahoma City en route to Grand Island to inspect the modifications to see if they were acceptable for aerial mapping. If not, he was to call General Smith, who would arrange for Major White's recommendations to be adopted. Major Wright agreed that it might be appropriate to have the remaining 16 aircraft modified like the first two, but there were several other modifications which he felt were more important than many of those that had been briefed. He felt he needed Curtis Electric reversible propellers installed on all aircraft to replace the hydraulic Hamilton standard props. This would increase the safety of operations in the sh- on the short lad field runway during aborted takeoffs and during landings in wet or icy conditions. He felt that all of the gauges in the in- on the instruments panel should be changed from vacuum to electric for reliability reasons and temperatures below zero degrees Fahrenheit. He felt the existing astrodome should be removed and replaced with one at least twice the diameter because the navigators didn't have sufficient space in the current one to to do accurate celestial navigation. The new astrodome would also have to be heated. He didn't feel the insulated crew compartment heating were adequate for long duration missions in the Arctic. This was especially true in the aft compartment where the cameras were located. He also felt the optically clear thermoplane windows would have to be installed through which the Trimtrogan camera would take photographs. The tails and wingtips of all 18 aircraft should be painted bright red in case of forced landing, particularly if on the polar cap. Each plane must have a radar scope camera that would take a large quantity of quality scope pictures without changing film during the flight. The camera must allow the radar operator to observe the picture on the radar scope while the scope camera was recording the picture. The radar camera would also have to be heated. All aircraft should be winterized before departing the States for Ladfield. 
Major White wanted to have Arctic ground engine heaters with at least twice the heating capacity for the standard Herman Nelson cold weather engine heaters and at least two for each engine. He also questioned the windshield heating cap capability to keep the nose windows free from frost and ice at all times during the ground operations and while airborne. A plan of action for the aircraft modification program at the Oklahoma City Depot was developed as follows. Modifications in order of importance. 1. Install fuel injection aircraft engines. 2. Install trimetrogen cameras and B-29s. 3. Install optical clear thermopane windows for the camera installations. 4. Install Curtis electric reversible propellers. 5. Install all electric gauges on instrument panels. 6. Install radar scope camera with large film capacity. 7. Add additional insulation and heating throughout the cabin and especially in the camera areas. 8. Install larger astrodome at navigator's position. 9. Paint the entire tail and wingtips bright red. 10. Install two bladder type fuel tanks in both bomb bays of each aircraft. 11. Finish stripping turrets and guns from all aircraft that have already been started. 12. Expedite the installation of the first 10 modifications listed above. 13. The aircraft will be picked up at the depot by crews from the 46 as soon as the aircraft are ready. 14. With the above 10 modifications in place, those aircraft will be redesignated as F 13s. 15. If there is need for more aircraft with a large single metal tank in each bomb bay, aircraft stripped of turrets and guns will be recycled back through the depot first. All parties agreed on the above 15 items and measures were immediately taken to begin implementing the new modification program. An augmented table of organization and equipment was developed by SAC headquarters who arranged for it to be shipped to and through the Seattle port to Ladd Field, Fairbanks, Alaska. The next item discussed during the briefing was the question of technical representatives. Major White felt he needed tech reps for the airframe and all major components of the aircraft to be assigned to the 46th Fairbanks until military maintenance officers and senior NCOs felt confident of their own abilities to troubleshoot and repair all problems normally encountered. It was also suggested by Major White that the 46th would need to have an augmented reconnaissance technical squadron assigned or attached. The briefing also included a discussion of the numbers of officers and men that would be required to support unit operations involved involving 18 B-29 aircraft. For comparative statistics, it was determined that the personnel requirements would be twice that of two normal B-29 squadrons in a small place like Salina, Kansas during opera winter operations. Estimated figures indicated, indicated that the unit would need approximately 250 officers and 1,000 enlisted men. This was not to be construed as a manning ceiling but as a general guideline for manning of manning requirements. If the 46th commander felt that more people were needed, he would work with SAC Deputy's Chief of Staff of Personnel, Colonel Frederick J. Sutherland. The movement of personnel to Alaska presented a problem. Wartime regulations were still in effect, which required that all personnel being shipped outside the continental limits of the United States for a permanent change of station must be given 30 days leave just prior to departure. SAC headquarters felt that the movement of the 46th Recon to Ladfield, Alaska on Project Nanook 
was so urgent that there were no way their departure could be delayed by 30 days. So the decision was made to move the unit to Ladfield on 180 days temporary duty, and then change their orders to PCS at the end of the 180-day period. If this change of orders from TDY to PCS created a hardship for, on any personnel, the matter would be handled on an individual basis, and those affected would, in all probability, be shipped back to the lower 48 if circumstances warranted. To expedite the move of the 46th from Grand Island to Fairbanks, SAC and Army Air Force's headquarters decided to place under the operational control of the commander of the 46-4C-54 transport aircraft complete with crews. After the move to Alaska was completed, the C-54s were to remain under the operational control of the 46th commander at Fairbanks to assist him in fulfilling the unit mission. It was also discussed that all flights of the 46 aircraft departing on operational missions would maintain radio silence at all times during their mission so as not to advertise their presence in the Arctic. In case of an emergency, the aircraft commander would decide what action would be taken in the interest of crew safety regarding the breaking of radio silence. If a crew was to make a forced landing on the polar cap on land or in Soviet territory, the aircraft commander would decide what action to take whether to stay with the downed vehicle or attempt to walk to safety. Survival training for the air crews would have to be conducted in and by the 46th in Alaska as there were no such programs of, or course of instructions in being within the military at the time. Army Air Force Headquarters researched this problem and learned that there was uh, Captain Harold Strong of Eskimo Extraction who was assigned to cold weather tests at Wright Field. Major White asked if Captain Strong could be assigned to the 46 to help up set up the unit's survival program, and it was agreed that the captain would be assigned to the 46 when it arrived at Fairbanks. Air Sea Rescue in Alaska had a very limited capability and possessed no aircraft with sufficient range to be of assistance to the 46 in the event of a crash landing on the polar cap. It was discussed that it would have to be the responsibility of the 46 to conduct its own research efforts, own search efforts, and keep SAC advised of progress being made. SAC would in turn keep Army Air Force headquarters informed, who would insist in, assist in rescue operations. There seemed to be no solution to picking a cruise down on the polar cap. Someone suggested that, in such a case, a PPY Catalina amphibian could be landed on the ice and snow of the polar cap to pick up downed crews. It was discussed at some length, and in light of the fact that there didn't appear to be any better ideas, SAC decided that two PPYs would be assigned with crews to the 46 when it arrived at Ladd Field. Strategic Air Command Headquarters then had decided that would maintain direct operational control of the 46th Recon. Army Air Force Headquarters would notify the Alaskan Theater of Operations and the Alaskan Air Command of this fact and request that the Ladfield Base Commander be notified also. The Alaskan Theater was to provide support to the 46th to help assure the success of the 46th mission. SAC requested that the commander of the 46th make courtesy calls on the Theater Commander Major General Howard A. Craig and the commander of the Alaskan Air Command, Brigadier General Joseph H. Atkinson, on an occasional basis to keep them apprised of the 46th progress and any lack of theater support being experienced. 
The Alaskan Air Command provided a C-47 transport aircraft to the 46th that would be ski-equipped for winter operations. They also provided a smaller twin-engine C-45 aircraft for utility use. SAC's Chief of Staff Brigadier General Frederick Smith said to Major White, I don't know if you fully realize at this time what a really tough job you have ahead of you. You're going to run into problems that you can't solve. Now I'm talking primarily about rank problems. I wish I could promote you to colonel today, but I can't. All promotions are frozen, and that won't change for a long time. You will get into situations where you can't talk your way out of. General Smith continued, You have been given responsibilities normally given only to people with much higher rank. Higher ranking people will sense that, and there are those who will challenge you. One thing I have been able to do for you is to make sure you have a set of quarters on the base in the officer's row at Ladd Field so you can take your family with you when you go to Fairbanks. I already know you have the ability to carry out this job to which you are assigned, but when you get into a situation where you are stopped, I want you to understand that I still hold you responsible for getting the job done. I want you to know and understand, the general added, that you can call me any time of day or night and I will help you solve any problem confronting you that you can't handle. He handed Major White a card saying, here's my private line in my office. And the other number <clears throat> answers at my quarters. Carry that card in your billfold. Major White needed that card just a few hours later when he arrived at the depot in Oklahoma City to find the camera installations were not workable. Afterwards, he continued on to Grand Island to see the organization and movement of the 46th Recon Squadron to Ladfield, Fairbanks, Alaska. Major White looked forward to this assignment in Alaska with a little apprehensions. He knew what the Arctic could do to a person. When he was stationed on Umnak Island in the Aleutian chain in 1942 as wartime photographic officer for the Alaska Defense Command, he often had to slog through ankle-deep mud battling sheets of rain, sleet, and snow that blew horizontally through the camp from across the Bering Sea. Conditions were so bad that men often chose to terminate their Alaskan tour and escape its misery and isolation by removing a boot, placing their big toe inside the trigger housing of a 30-06 Springfield rifle, putting the muzzle under their chin, and pushing on the trigger. A less violent but equally effective method of ending the boredom was to drink torpedo juice, a raw wood alcohol used in the torpedoes they dropped. This approach had the effect of destroying one's brain tissue, leaving the person staggering around, around camp, bellowing like a bull moose for a week to ten days before passing on. It seemed like one or two people would use these techniques each day and there was nothing the medics could do for any of them. The Major resolved that he would do all he could for the morale and well-being of those people assigned to his organization. And that is the end of the first three chapters of A World in Peril by Ken White. Thank you all for joining me again uh, as we go into Season 2. Um, go to follow me on Twitter if you want to see some updates or just get the posts for the links when they go up. And um, check out the archive.org for this format. And I'm also going to look to see if I can find those pages 7s and 8s because I'm curious as to see what's on them. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.